Reading from Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 38. Peter's declaration about Jesus. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Jesus foretells his death and resurrection. Then he began to teach them that the son of man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their lives will lose it, and those who lose their lives for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of them, the Son of Man, will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." Father, as we come to your word, we pray that we would hear and we would listen, that we would understand, that you would speak to us and through us. Amen. It's become a little bit of a trend recently to start sermonizing in um, in Bloomsbury, with a, with a title of a pop song. And uh, I couldn't start writing the sermon without trying to find the sermon and a title of a pop song that I could bring to you this morning. And the title is The Wind Beneath My Wings. Do you know the song? Do you ever know that you're my hero? Yeah, it's from Beaches. Bette Midler sings it. It's a brilliant song. I am not going to try and sing it to you, okay? And I haven't even attempted to put it on PowerPoint because I, you know, it, it just wouldn't be great. The idea of heroes has been in the in the for the last couple of months, the last year even. And especially this weekend when we commemorate the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And over this past month, we have seen heroic acts by women in Afghanistan. We've seen the Olympic champions, the Paralympic champions, Emma Raducanu, British winner of the American Open. And of course, throughout the pandemic, our NHS staff. I want to ask you to think about for a few moments, your heroes, 
The people that you appreciate. Have you got some heroes, kids? Have you got some heroes? Can I show you some heroes, see if you know them? Do you know these heroes? You're too shy. Hmm? Yeah. Anybody else know them? Come on, you can all join in. Do you know them? Iron Man. Well done, Nigel. Yeah. Captain America. The Hulk is there. And Thor. Yeah. And I've noticed that somebody's wearing R2-D2. One of my favourite uh, programmes and films. Star Wars series. Fantastic. Recently, I noticed when I was shopping in Sainsbury's that I was given these hero stickers. Right? And uh, I'm collecting them for my grandchildren, honestly, yeah? <laughs> so if you're um, at the counter and you don't collect them yourself, you know, my grandchildren would really appreciate them. Huh? <clears throat> what I like about um, the Disney book is that it, the Sainsbury book is that it crosses over many different franchises. So you've got something from Disney, something from Pixar, something from Star Wars, and something from Marvel. So there's enough heroes for everybody. There's enough identification for everybody. I suspect that each of us have heroes, people we admire, who have made an impact on our lives. We admire their brilliance and their achievements. We often reference our heroes, sometimes modeling ourselves on them. You know, as a church, we have a hero that we are modeling and we are referencing currently, aren't we? Can you remember who that is? I have a dream, can I say that? Yeah. It's great when the church knows what's going on. It's all, it always impresses me. And today's uh, Bible passage has really impressed me. Um, when you do things from the, from the lectionary, sometimes it doesn't quite tie in and you're wondering where on earth are they and why are they? And it gets confusing. But the passage from James talking about controlling the tongue and then the reflections from the gospel where Peter makes his confession of the identity of who Jesus is as the Messiah. And then practically instantaneously, according to the story, his great failure of not understanding what the messianic mission was about. Our gospel reading is set in that in the Christian year, ending the story of the life and times of Jesus of Nazareth. While around us out in the world, they're gathering and collecting up for Christmas. I've already had an image from my grandson saying, I want this advent calendar, okay? And do you know there's only 104 sleeps until Christmas day? But we in church are finishing the story and the life and times of Jesus. The reading today is tracing the journey of Jesus to the preparation for the Easter events. We, we are a bit weird. 
Jesus had spent three years ministering to all the peoples of Israel, taking to the far flung corners of the country, feeding of the 4,000. Did you notice when you've heard that story in the past that they were in a remote place? And this precedes the walking to Caesarea Philippi. One commentator has suggested that he took the, to the remote parts so that no one would have an excuse of not hearing him and not knowing about him. And on this journey of mission, Jesus had gathered around himself a band of followers who he was teaching and preparing with the message of love and acceptance by God for all. And this route to Jerusalem for the way of the cross has brought him to a road and to the place of Caesarea Philippi. That town was formerly called Panias. Then Herod, the great's son, Philip, renamed it in order of Caesar and to set it apart from all those other places called Caesar. You can imagine it, can't you? Caesar this, Caesar's palace, Caesar's... Philippi was added. And then according to the Hellenistic tradition, this place, this Panias, was the gate of Hades behind some huge uh, waterfalls that was in the community. And while they're there and while they're walking and while they're chatting, Jesus turns to the disciples along the road and asks, who do people say that I am? And I was wondering, was Jesus conducting a survey? If Ipsos Mori was around, would he have used them to find out the answer? What was he asking? Did he want to know if his message was on point? Was he looking for ways to improve his messaging? Was his intent to clarify that message? The disciples have taken up the question and they reiterate, they tell him what they have heard within that community. And they say that some people in the community say that he is John the Baptist, others Elijah, or one of the prophets. The people of Israel are looking back and hoping for a new hero. They are taking people from the past, community champions, prophets who had taken the lead and challenged the status quo and spoke up for them, and then led them out of tyranny, led them out of occupation, and restored them back to God and a new restored religion. This is what the people were expecting. Jesus not wanted to drill deeper than the world of who he was. And asking his community of followers, he says, then, if this is what the people say, who I am, who do you say I am? And my favorite friend, Peter, makes that amazing confession, that amazing realization 
that you are the Messiah. What was his expectation of that? What was his thoughts about that? Had he captured in those words 500 plus years of hope and expectation? The anointed one, the promised deliverer, the new king, the healer. Peter summing up the hopes of the people and the community for a hero. In this passage, Jesus accepts Peter's announcement and tells the disciples not to tell anyone else. The messianic secret of Mark's gospel. And as they approach, as they move forward where they walk, Jesus begins to explain what his real mission is. The mission of reconciliation and acceptance via his death and resurrection. And then in charges Peter again with a rebuke. You can't be saying that. How many of us like it when our friends talk about their death? How many of us want to hear someone go, oh, I'm dying, you know? It's not nice. And Peter has taken Jesus aside and said, we, we, we don't want that. We don't want to hear this. And this death that he's, that he's talking about is one that is not nice, not easy, difficult. And then Jesus rebukes Peter in an open and amazing way. In Mark's retelling of the Great Confession, no mention of Peter as the rock. Did you pick that up? When we hear the other gospel stories, you are the rock and upon this rock I will build my church and all those things. And then you get, and the gates of hell will not prevail against you. Where were they standing? Panidas, where the, where the gates of Hades was. But for Peter at this point, in this story, because he is thinking more about what man wants than what is on God's heart, he's called the deceiver. Get behind me, Satan. He's called the liar. Get behind me, Satan. His words are not true. The truth is that Jesus must move forward towards death and resurrection. When we think of our heroes, as I've said, they're often people who struggle, people with a fervent commitment to a cause, who are sacrificed for a goal. Jesus teach, is teaching all those who are walking with him towards Jerusalem of the great cost of becoming a follower. Now, these people were following Jesus. These people were with him along the way. These people had been with him for years. And he says, if you want to follow me, there is a cost. There is a challenge. There is a struggle. And he says they have to take up their cross daily. And my mind was reflecting on those lovely images and crucifixes that some of us wear, 
those ones that are golden and glorious, those images that you see often depicted on stained glass windows where it's not too gory. But for the people who were hearing this, crucifixion was, I'd say, a regular event in their lives. It was the chosen form of execution for non-Romans. It was disgusting. It was an experience that they had. And here is Jesus saying to them, your challenge is a great challenge to pick up your cross daily. So that your life may change and you might move on following me who has given everything. And then a little reflection back to the passage in James. This was about 60 years after Jesus' death, about, about the time and the church has moved away. The church is changing. Don't consider yourself to be a teacher. Don't look after, run after power, after glory, after all those things. Be humble. You choose your words wisely. Speak to each other nicely. Care for one another. What a difference in a church. From what Jesus was asking them to do, take up their cross, be humble, follow him, be like him. And the author of the book of James is saying, don't be proud. Peter is one of my biblical heroes. Not because he was the foundation of the church, as some might say. But because he could spectacularly succeed and he could spectacularly fall short. And yet God used him. God used him in the church. God used him in the world to change that world. A couple of moments ago, I asked you who were your heroes. You you, anybody want to tell me who their hero is? Michelle Obama. Michelle Obama. Right, okay. Yeah? Barbara Stanford, right? Okay, okay. I'm like me, aren't? it took me to the end of the sermon to realize who my hero should be. It should be Jesus. It took me a while to fall in. It took me a while to realize that I have Peter as my hero. And yeah, Jesus is my savior, but Jesus should be our hero. Perhaps the first person we mention, the first person that we think of, the person that we admire the most, the person that we follow the most, the person that we model ourselves on as Christians. 
And then I remembered those wonderful words in Philippians. Let your, let your heart be like that of Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Our hero should be Jesus. We should be following him. We should be humble and gentle. And we should be picking up our cross daily. Let's just spend a few moments in quiet. I'm going to ask our panel to join me now. We have Roseanne, Philip and Duncan who are going to uh, Share some lights. Right, have you got uh, something that you'd like to share with us? Philip's already prepared. He's uh... well. I was very grateful for knowing what the readings were. It's a great help um, in advance. <clears throat> and of course, Simon does publish his sermons in advance, so we can have a quick peek then at what's coming up. But um, obviously, I didn't know this morning. Um, but uh, a few preliminary thoughts. Um, Yes, he mentions Jesus as our hero, of course, and also Peter. Uh, and I think a very strong case from me might actually be for James, um, uh, from whom the readings are taken. Um, first of all, um, there are a lot of links between this, the epistle of James, and, an, and um, Proverbs in the Old Testament. And we've noticed this with um, Simon's sermons before, there's been an awful lot of his New Testament preaching, which has been based on the Old Testament, and a lot of the stories have come through. And these are some odd verses here, Proverbs 15, the tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouth of the fool gushes folly. Another verse, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat of their fruits, i.e. death or life. So two quick questions. How can tongue mastery become the basis of self-mastery? How can the tongue be tamed? A lovely verse from Proverbs 15, a gentle tongue is a tree of life. Lovely verse that, a gentle tongue is a tree of life. And of course, it's um, gone on into the secular sphere as well. The pen is mightier than the sword. And just a little teaser to end on. Um, <clears throat> Uh, a lot of people, you know this thing, does the Bible contradict itself? Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. Example, example, example. And back <clears throat> in Proverbs 26, we have two verses, four and five, and which constantly refer, or leading up to, to the word fool. So do these two verses contradict themselves, or do they not? I let you decide. I'm going to sit on the fence. Proverbs 26, 4. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. 
The next verse, Proverbs 26, verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. Okay. Okay. You can decide. Thank you. Um, I, I find it, I, I feel some sympathy because I think if, if you're a disciple and you're sitting there with Jesus and your hero or your leader or however you, you picture him and is then started talking about his death, I, I have to say, I think it, it must come as a horrible, a horrible situation to be put in. And I feel quite... Uh, quite sorry for them in, in that actually nobody really wants to face that situation and still you don't want to face that from your nearest and dearest and you, you we don't I think like talking about death anyway I don't think it, it comes very easily to, to most of us and actually I, I feel quite a lot of sympathy for him there being rebuked for having having tried to make his <coughs> discomfort around that apparent um I also feel that the, the tongue is it's getting a very unfair weapon given it's just a, a muscle and actually the, the tongue does very little of the, the the tongue is just the means of the communication we, we need to look at our hearts and our brains for what what the tongue is being asked to communicate it just throwing, throwing that out thank you well i also thought those two um juxtaposition of this of the, of the passage from james about the tongue and then the um uh the gospel passage seemed to be, I couldn't really see the relationship between them. But there was something that intrigued me, which was that when Jesus said, who do people say I am? He's obviously asking, as you rightly pointed out, what public opinion was. And then people say, using their tongues, who they think Jesus was. And then when Peter says, you're the Messiah, Jesus sternly told him not to tell anybody else. And I'm thinking, well, what, what was the reason for that response? Um, and you talked about the messianic secret in Mark's gospel. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking that Mark's gospel was the earliest of the gospels. And I'm assuming that to some extent it was, I mean, I'm, not, I'm assuming it wasn't written by an eyewitness who was at that conversation between Peter and uh, and, and the Lord at, at that time. So why did, the, why did the writer put that sentence, that dialogue back into that conversation? What was the reason that somebody who knew the messianic secret wasn't allowed to tell other people? Um, so there was clearly, clearly some constraint of the tongue that was required in that situation. It wasn't just about blurting out what people thought. And perhaps, perhaps there's an element to that in the way that we witness to our Christian faith as well. I mean, make it, you know, bring it down to earth a bit more. I mean, sometimes when people say, oh, Jesus, oh, Christ, that, you know, it, when we're Christians, that can be quite um, a disturbing point. But then again, you know, is it appropriate then to rebuke somebody and get cross with them for taking the Lord's name in vain in that way, or, you know, say something about, well, that's my savior's name. Don't use it in that. I, I think again, this is a point where the restraint of what we say also has value. The, uh, I can't say the answer to Duncan's question is 
certain, but uh, the thoughts are that Jesus didn't want people to know that he was the Messiah because of all the baggage that went with it. All that 500 years of expectation that would lead people to revolt rather than to the resurrection. In our prayers today, I'd like us to consider the role of words. Loving God, we thank you for the opportunity to read the scriptures, the books we call the Word of God. We thank you that in many subtle and surprising ways, the words speak to us and challenge us. We thank you that the words of Christ are recorded and for the invitation to hear them, to understand his message and to appreciate his mission. We, pray, we praise you for the opportunity that church provides to listen to speakers and have conversations with other believers. But we take seriously the warning that the words of our tongues can cause so much trouble. There are lots of times when we veer from the truth when we're talking to ourselves and to other people. Sometimes we don't even know with clarity what we believe, but we know we could be more honest. We give you thanks when our faith deepens through reading the Bible and also through our own experiences. In our own lives, we give you thanks for the people we're spending time with this week, be it our families or family-like communities formed around common experiences. We pray for families who still cannot meet in the usual way because of the pandemic or for other reasons. We pray for, pray for those who are lonely or have gone off their food because they're depressed. We pray for those who are eating or drinking too much or turning to drugs. We think of those who feel lost. We think of all those who are caring for those who are sick or frail, recognizing the particular difficulties faced with coping with situations like depression or memory loss or fractured relationships. Lord, as we go about our lives this week, help us to take the words we've heard this morning with us. Prompt us to say the right things and give us the awareness to keep our tongues in check. In Jesus' name, amen. And now unto him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before his glorious presence without spot or blemish. Be glory, honour, power and authority, both now and for evermore. Amen. Amen. <laughs>